Research Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, coming to you from the School of Engineering Education at Purdue University. The goal of Research Briefs is to expand the boundaries of engineering education research. In these podcasts, we'll speak to researchers about new theories, new methods, and new findings in engineering education research. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Louie. Michael holds the Dale and Susie Gallagher Professorship in Engineering Education at Purdue University. He previously was a professor of electrical and computer engineering at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign for 33 years. He served one year as a program officer at the National Science Foundation, four years as an associate dean of the Graduate College at Illinois, and five years as the editor of the Journal of Engineering Education. Welcome, Michael. You've had a long and varied career, and I know you've accumulated wisdom from those experiences. I thank you for sharing your ideas with our listeners, and we hope you'll provide advice from various perspectives. Can you begin by giving the listeners a brief account of your journey, first into the scholarship of teaching and learning, and then into engineering education research? Yes, thank you, Ruth, for inviting me. When I began teaching electrical and computer engineering at Illinois in 1981, I had had no preparation or training for teaching, but I'm an academic, so I have an unusual habit of learning from books. I read books in college teaching, such as the seventh edition of Teaching Tips by Wilbur McKeechee, which is now in its 14th edition, I guess. Uh, from these books, I became aware that there was uh, research on college teaching. Um, I continued to read books and newsletters for classroom teachers. Um, then in the early 2000s, uh, a couple of master's students in electrical and computer engineering asked me to supervise their thesis projects related to classroom teaching. We would call these scholarship of teaching and learning kinds of projects because they were aimed at understanding what happens in the classroom and, and improving our our teaching practice. Uh, we presented the results of these uh, thesis research projects at conferences. Uh, then in 2003, I was named a Carnegie Scholar by the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching uh, to contribute to that movement for the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning. Uh, I like to call the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning, or SOTL, SOTO, uh, the gateway drug to more rigorous discipline-based uh, education uh, research. Um, during this period, after the uh, Carnegie Scholars uh, uh, year, I collaborated with graduate students and faculty, colleagues on research projects and engineering education, often with the generous support of grants from the National Science Foundation. So I was doing that for a few years, and then I became noticed, and uh, uh, although I'd spent some time on editorial boards of more technical journals, I was invited to become the executive editor of a uh, journal called College Teaching in 2006. And so I had had experience as a, a journal editor uh, before I was invited to apply for the editorship of the Journal of Engineering Education. Um, and uh, uh, so like uh, College Teaching is a, a journal that's a scholarship of teaching and learning journal for classroom teachers, but 
Journal of Engineering Education addresses a somewhat different audience. Nevertheless, I thought I might be qualified. Um, uh, a member of the search committee invited me to apply, and independently, the Dean of Engineering at Illinois also encouraged me to apply in the fall of 2011. Um, indeed, I did apply. I was interviewed, and, and I was offered the position. I went back to the Dean to remind him that he would need to commit uh, substantial funds for a half-time assistant editor, and he agreed. Then I walked to the office of my department head to request a reduction in my teaching assignment. I, by the way, I never say teaching load, which implies that teaching is a burden. Mm -hmm. Teaching is an opportunity. Um, uh, the reduction in teaching assignment would be, I thought, necessary because my predecessor, Jack Lohman, as the editor, told me that the editorship was a quarter-time position, although he did not tell me the numerator for quarter-time. <laughs> a quarter of his very long work week. Um, in any case, my department head agreed to the teaching reduction. So since the dean was willing to put up the money and the department head was willing to reduce my teaching assignment, I was left without an excuse to decline the position. And so I accepted <laughs> the editorship. Uh, it was a great honor and, and a great um, amount of work, but an important stewardship responsibility of senior people like me to help the field advance. So is there... Anything you would want to say about your vision for JEE when you took it over from Jack? I know Jack Lohman were, those were big uh, shoes to fill. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't have a really big vision. I had a small vision. Mm -hmm. I wanted a JEE to have at least something in every issue that uh, would appeal to readers uh, across all um, parts of engineering education, not just researchers, but also uh, classroom instructors, administrators. And at least I think the um, guest editorials serve that purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, occasionally I would use my bully pulpit and write a, uh, an editorial myself. Um, we, as you know, most of the articles do address uh, other researchers. And so it was hard to achieve the full part of my vision, but I was glad to be able to find a quite accessible guest editorial for each issue that I was responsible for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also spent five years institutionalizing the changes that Jack had made. It was really a period of consolidation. Um, mm -hmm. If you'd like, I can say a little bit more about what I did. Uh, sure. During, sure. So uh, Jack had initiated the emphasis on uh, theoretically grounded, methodologically rigorous research um, around 2005 or so. So during my first year, uh, my assistant editor and I uh, were managing the transition to Wiley as our new publisher. We had a surge of manuscript submissions from 150 per year to 300 per year. So wow. I needed to re recruit uh, and appoint more associate editors. Uh, the editorial board and I then revised the author guidelines uh, and some of our internal processes mm -hmm. to uh, help with the um, emphasis on rigorous research and also uh, to handle the large number of submissions each year. Um, we also began returning the de-identified decision letters, which included all of the peer review reports back to the re all of the reviewers as one way to educate reviewers about our standards and expectations so that um, each reviewer could read the reports of the other reviewers and gain some learning that way. Um, I'm uh, although this is a standard practice of many journals, it had to be initiated at the right. JE as well. So, uh, and I'm glad to see that the practice is continuing. I'm also proud to report that during my tenure, qualitative research methods really became accepted. Every issue had at least one qualitative or mixed methods study. So I think we were in a period of consolidation mm -hmm. uh, and 
Uh, I'm glad to see that uh, with the editorship of Lisa Benson for the last couple of years, um, it's uh, continued to uh, grow and thrive. Yes, yes. Now, I, I have a question to ask you, and I know I didn't think of this before, so you haven't had time to prepare. But um, when you were speaking about um, having uh, JEE be available for or having some there that's that's accessible to the more general reader, um, it made me think of the JEE Selects item that's in the uh, Prism magazine um, for ASWE. How are how are those articles selected? Yes, so uh, JE had an agreement with the uh, ASEE Prism Magazine, which goes to all members of the American Society for Engineering Education, um, and uh, that is published eight times a year. So in the past, Jack would just choose uh, an article and invite the authors to uh, write a 650-word version of it that would be more accessible to a broader audience. Um, and that uh, he'd work with the authors to um, produce that short version and uh, as a way of publicizing the work and showing its application or potential application to classroom practice or administrative practice. Um, I continued that tradition uh, by choosing uh, articles and working with authors, but I also opened it up to our sibling journal. I would say sister journal, but nowadays with gender fluidity. And all, yes, yes. That's sibling is better. Uh, advances in engineering education. So they had four uh, uh, issues of prison per year to have that column, and we had four. Mm -hmm. So uh, I tried to uh, choose uh, articles from JEE that will, might uh, be of in, more general interest, and I work with the authors. I'm very proud of the uh, magazine versions of those articles that we produced. Uh, I do encourage people to look at those and then to um, uh, each article ends with a reference to the article in JEE where the uh, original appears. And many of them really are quite uh, readable. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they are people to find, find those. Right. Right. Well, I was going to ask you to um, kind of do advice for people in, in putting different hats on. And since we've spoken a bit about your editor hat, um, are there things that you want to say that are directly related to that, such as advice for writers or writing a publication, selecting a journal? Yes, I have a, a lot of uh, advice that I've shared with graduate students on uh, all aspects from uh, starting a research project to writing the manuscript to choosing a journal. Um, so maybe uh, we can start with uh, the first part, which is about um, uh, do selecting a research problem mm -hmm. prepared for that. Um, I think just being prepared is a, always a good thing as well. Um, I uh, like to echo what a number of your previous guests have said is that it's important to read widely and get good ideas from other literatures, uh, especially methods. In my own case, uh, my own journey from Saddle through engineering education research, I've uh, stolen good ideas from uh, physics education, chemistry education, and computing education. I've done work in concept inventories, peer-led team learning, uh, pair programming. So uh, that's the first bit of advice, is be open to other literatures mm -hmm. uh, and getting good ideas from there. Then as people get started in, in doing research, I, I think uh, one way of learning how to 
uh, use various research methods is to do a replication study uh, of a study that's used the kind of method that you'd like to try to use. Um, we need more replication studies to, uh, to assure ourselves that the, our findings really uh, do extend across uh, the particular context in which they were done. Uh, uh, if you're doing quantitative studies, we talk about generalizability. If you're doing qualitative studies, we're talking about transferability to other contexts. So uh, that will give the field more um, confidence that the findings mm -hmm. really do extend to other situations. So replication studies uh, allow you to follow somebody else's research design, and it's easier to do that. Although uh, you should always look for potential improvements. Um, then uh, uh, I also said that I heard that uh, um, Nobel laureate Herbert Simon say that to do good research, you should choose a good problem and possess a secret weapon. So uh, the secret weapon would be the special tool or method that you become skilled at using. And it's important to uh, be comfortable using those methods and proficient. But then the research question is also important. Um, and I advise people to choose a research questions about an important problem uh, that uh, where you can make an impact. Uh, your personal curiosity is necessary, but it's not really sufficient. I feel life is too short and research is too expensive in terms of time and energy uh, to devote to projects that don't make an impact. So uh, always think about what the potential impact of your work could be. Uh, be prepared to say the significance, uh, to answer the big, so what? Don't just fill gaps in liter the literature. Some gaps are simply not worth with filling. I once thought I should write a... Um, uh, peer review report that says this paper fills a much needed gap in the literature, but um, So we're looking at maximizing impact So uh, one way to do that is to connect your research problem with something that other people care about uh, So in engineering we care about retention of students. Uh, we care about rounding participation and so on. So uh, sm Start with your small project. It has to be a, a, just a piece of our larger um, edifice of knowledge, but a project that still addresses a piece of the big question uh, and help people see the connection and how your work might impact uh, impact that. Um, I agree. You agree. Good. I agree. So, um, uh, you know, it's often you'll start with a smaller pilot study, getting preliminary data can help you get going, you can get feedback on that. It can also, you can also parlay the uh, pilot data into uh, grant proposals, and maybe I can put on my uh, program director's hat since mm -hmm. I served for a year at the National Science Foundation. Uh, when I was at the National Science Foundation, um, uh, the average NSF grant uh, represented the federal tax returns of about 11 households. So imagine going to 11 families in your neighborhood uh, and ask them whether they're willing to allocate their tax returns toward your project. Now, if you are at a college or university, you may live in a community that values higher education. So that might be an easier task than somebody who lives in a large urban community. But still, I think that's an important vision to keep in mind. Uh, uh, would your uh, work be uh, have some meaning to people uh, uh, who are going to uh, fund your work? Right? Um, so I wonder now if it's maybe up to uh, 15 households or something we could see if, we, mm -hmm. if the grant 50, well, yeah. has gotten bigger. Depends on the grant size. And so I'm just talking about a rough number there. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was at the National Science Foundation, I like to explain the value 
of what we were supporting to everyday, uh, just ordinary lay people like um, uh, cab drivers. Um, and uh, I think I found that um, many people are have a favorable disposition toward research. They realize that research develops new technologies or in our case, better ways of education uh, that make all of our lives better, but they just want to know what they're getting for their money. Mm -hmm. And I think that the idea of communicating with the public is really important too. So uh, that's uh, another reason why I want to encourage the JE Selects uh, thing as well. I right. do think the field needs more public intellectuals, but that's maybe another conversation another day. Um, so I thought I'd go on and say uh, something about writing the manuscript. Yes. Um, okay, so uh, you've done the work, you've collected some data. Of course, you should start writing as soon as you have anything because writing is a form of thinking and helps clarify your ideas. But um, as you're uh, starting to put together more of a formal manuscript, um, uh, think about potential journals. Uh, uh, we'll get to journal selection in a moment here, but... Uh, uh, think about what their standards might be. Um, in education research, we, many of us follow the, uh, I'm going to quote the exact title here, Standards for Reporting Empirical Social Science Research, uh, published by the AERA, or American Education Research Association. Um, the standards, it's a, I think it's about a 12-page article in the journal called Educational Researcher uh, in the uh, August-September 2006 issue. So that uh, set of standards has uh, everything that we followed at the Journal of Engineering Education. And uh, it's very complete. It talks about um, the things you should include in your manuscript, such as justifying your research design, justifying your sample or site, if you're doing qualitative study, uh, the people you've chosen for interviews, why those are information-rich cases, justifying your methods, uh, doing a thorough analysis, being uh, uh, aware of uh, whether statistical tests are appropriate, effect sizes, uh, methods for validity, reliability, trustworthiness, limitations, alternative explanations. So all of those aspects, I think, are covered by those standards. Um, uh, other things, I found that daily writing really does work. And uh, one time I had to, um, I had about a month to um, deliver a manuscript. Um, of course, I had been asked three or four months prior to that, but uh, with everything else happening, I had only a month left and I applied that daily writing and sure enough, it really did work. I was able to deliver a first draft on time. So that's a testimonial to the power of daily writing. Um, and I even, yeah, did you want to- I, I was gonna ask you, people have different opinions about the length of time that daily writing should be. Do you have a, a point of view about that? Well, um, I think, uh, an hour a day is reasonable. Um, and some days I had more than that and I would go for two or three hours and get into the flow, as they say. Um, and the normal life is really busy. It's very hard to find that large block of three hours, but you can always find 30 to 60 minutes. Mm -hmm. And the idea of daily writing is that the topic stays in your brain and you can jot down more ideas and it gets uh, uh, the idea idea the important thing is the practice mm -hmm. rather than the actual amount of time per day. So I know you've uh, taught uh, our graduate students about writing. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you a question that seems to be kind of a common misconception that some of our students have, ah. that writing is what happens 
after you've thought it all through, how do you help uh, repair that misconception? Yeah, well, first there's an exhortation to begin writing uh, early in the process, uh, whenever you have any stray thoughts, or even uh, getting into the habit, uh, journaling, for example, informal writing, um, is something that people do uh, in the process of doing research, even before they've analyzed their data. Uh, and, and that also helps you develop fluency in writing. Um, there's uh, a couple of things I do. I, I have a, an old saying, I didn't know what I had to say until I've said it. Uh, uh, I think uh, that was from my um, brother-in-law, who is a, a professional writer and editor. Uh, I also use... Um, uh, 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 something that I learned from my colleague Alice Polly that the the um, paper or manuscript will, goes through multiple stages. So the first stage is you're writing for yourself. It's this, um, it, it could be personal writing, blogs, uh, journaling uh, that you don't expect to show anybody else. And so you, at that stage, just don't worry about grammar, or punctuation, or anything else. Just getting ideas down. Uh, we used to say on paper, but let's say on the screen. Then the second stage of writing is writing for others. So this is where you have versions of your manuscript that uh, you're willing to share with others. And I do urge everybody to get informal peer feedback well before journal submission. Uh, that can really accelerate your project progress. Even short, giving uh, peers short pieces, you can get feedback that you can leverage into other pieces of the manuscript. So you iterate through that second phase for a while with your manuscript. Uh, before you get to the third phase, which is writing for posterity, where the, that's the point transitioning from the second to the third phase is when it's ready to submit to a journal and you're ready to have really external peer review, uh, get a lot of feedback and, um, and have something that is worthy of, as uh, Alice would say, for posterity. So three stages. Remember that uh, what that implies is that you should be writing a lot all along the way, mm -hmm. and that uh, it's okay not to worry about um, how well you said it early on. It's just getting the ideas out, then getting them organized in that second phase where you're moving ideas around and you're drafting and redrafting to the point where everything is finally in the right order, more or less, and then it's ready for the external peer review and, and that process. Mm -hmm. Makes sense? It does make sense. Yes, it does. Yes, you it say does. something similar to your own students? Yes. Yes. Um, they don't always believe me, though. But uh, um, I, I heard a phrase that writing is a form of thinking. Yes. And um, to try to break that idea that, again, you've got to know what you're going to say before you write it. Um, yes. Yes. One of the things I've been thinking too is that, you know, words are so personal and for each of us, they have so many meanings, but they're meanings that we construct individually mm -hmm. and that you don't know if that's communicating unless you have people read it and give you feedback on, uh, do you mean this here? Do you mean that there? That's right. Um, and, and how really valuable that is and how everybody needs to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, in the academic writing course that you referred to, we read a couple of uh, pieces. One is a piece by Steven Pinker called Why Academic Writing Stinks. And he says it's the curse of knowledge that we know our subject so well that it's hard for us to imagine 
another person not know it as well. And so right. that's the, one of the reasons that uh, the writing sometimes seems inscrutable. And then uh, we also read a piece by Daryl Bem, uh, which is a chapter in a book called The Complete Academic. And it's a, the title is Writing the Empirical uh, Research Paper or something. Uh, Bem says, uh, if the reader is confused, it's the fault of the author. Mm-hmm. If the reader comes from the audience that the author is trying to reach and uh, is intelligent and experienced, then, uh, and if the reader's confused, then the author is not explained uh, well enough for right. the person. Right. So right. that's uh, where the author uh, does need to take responsibility and go back and revise. That's why the feedback from peers of the kinds of audiences you imagine uh, is really important. Right. Now, one thing that um, you and I spoke about before that we haven't touched on yet, I don't think, is choosing a theoretical framework. Ah, yes. Um, which I, I probably should have remembered to say back when we were talking about selecting a research project. But um, again, that seems to be something that is wildly confusing to new researchers of how, what a theoretical framework? What's that? And how how do I choose one? There's all these different frameworks. Mm-hmm. What's what's your advice to people about that? Right, I'm not sure I have very good advice for theoretical frameworks. I do think it's important to be uh, broadly read, so to be familiar with many different theoretical frameworks. Uh, I think they're very useful. So I'm very much a uh, pragmatist, as many people in engineering are, and an eclectic. So I'll borrow from everywhere. Um, I think it's important to have theoretical frameworks because they inform the research design and the data analysis, and it helps us be complete. So uh, if there are aspects of, let's say, self-efficacy, which is of interest to you, make sure that you address each of the components of that uh, construct. Uh, If your design is qualitative, that means, uh, and you're doing interviews, making sure you have questions in the interview that address all of the constructs. And then sometimes those uh, the theory can help you uh, start your um, your uh, coding, uh, your coding dictionary. Um, so it just helps us be complete, and it helps us think through things. Um, so I find it like to be a tool. Um, uh, we in engineering education research at the moment we tend to borrow most of our theories and theoretical frameworks from psychology, particularly educational psychology, uh, sociology, and so on. Um, and sometimes I see people combining ideas from multiple theoretical frameworks to make something that makes sense in their uh, situation. So uh, I would say, um, yes, be uh, open to all these theoretical frameworks, but have the courage to say, this doesn't quite fit. Let me develop something of my own. It'll be informed by what other people have done and uh, get peer feedback as well. So sometimes those theoretical frameworks that we develop ourselves might be of use to uh, not only other people in our field, but also other fields and uh, could be an export as well. Right, right. So uh, I guess you should have one. Um, I don't have strong advice on how to choose the best one. It's just whatever seems to fit and help you, just helps you be complete. Right, right. So Michael, are there any other hats you see lying around that you want to put on? Well, I haven't finished being the journal editor. Which oh, is- okay. Sorry. So many people uh, do submit to the Journal of Engineering Education because for some reason they think it's particularly prestigious. It has a uh, relatively high impact factor. We are consistently on, on this impact factor measure 
uh, for readers who are not familiar with how it's designed, it is in simplified terms, the average number of citations per published article within the next two years or so. Uh, there's a more careful definition of that and there are various variations on impact factors, but it's a very short window and it's number of citations per article. Uh, the Journal of Engineering Education uh, has been publishing only 25 or 30 articles per year. So our denominator is fairly uh, small. And so as a consequence, the impact factor fluctuates a lot. And sometimes we are uh, have very high impact factor. In fact, one year we were the top rated, had the top impact factor among all education research journals. And sometimes we were way down in the noise there. Um, uh, we're usually in the top 10% among education research journals. But the impact factor is an imperfect measure. It says nothing about the quality of a particular article. And in addition, the Journal of Engineering Education might not be the most appropriate journal. So it's a matter of fit first. Um, and so I advise people to, to find something that fits. Uh, sometimes you can uh, look at uh, the references that you uh, are, are citing as a, uh, because your article or your manuscript continues a conversation that's going on in those those journals. Um, of, of course, you should check the journal's uh, statement of scope and author guidelines. Um, getting suggestions from colleagues, they may suggest journals that you might not have thought of. Um, and as you look at these potential journals, uh, uh, check that your manuscript resembles the kinds of articles published there. So it's, uh, um, it's a matter of doing a little bit of homework. It's not that hard to look at the space of journals that might be interested in your manuscript. Um, and if you're unsure, by all means, contact the journal editor. I like to say journal editors put on their pants one leg at a time like everybody else. We're, mm -hmm. we're uh, people who are in the field. And uh, one of, part of our jobs is to communicate with the uh, people in our field. So uh, that was something I did enjoy doing uh, is communicating with uh, uh, potential authors. Um, and uh, usually by email, usually with the abstract, I'm not going to read the whole manuscript to give the feedback, but that's the whole point of the peer review process. But uh, that's that's uh, definitely something that people can do. Oh, one more bit of advice is to avoid these predatory journals. You may have heard about them in the news, but basically these are uh, online journals. So they uh, uh, all their published articles are accessible. And online journals have a generally have a cost model where the author pays. I mean, there are real costs. So it's a matter of who pays which costs. And in online journals, typically, uh, there's a fee assessed to the authors to defray the cost of publication. Well, these predatory journals will take your fee in return for publishing your paper without any real peer review. They'll often just promise a decision within two weeks or 10 working days. Um, and they're just after your your money, so you don't, you won't, can't get a thorough peer review in just a couple of weeks. Uh, right. Any reputable journal is going to take at least a couple of months. In the Journal of Engineering Education, we tell people three to four months, and we were able to um, uh, get a decision um, within three months for about seventy percent of the submissions, and within four months for about ninety percent. And I wish it could be for all of the submissions, but delays are inevitable. Yes. Anyway. That, that's some advice on, on journals. Yeah, just because it seems to be fast doesn't mean it's uh, appropriate. Right, right. I, I do it. have a story. I guess I have a personal story about finding the appropriate journal. Okay. So, um, I uh, wrote a paper with um, 
uh, two graduate students, uh, Brett Robbins and um, Eric Johnson. Uh, and it was, it was basically a scholarship of teaching and learning study of, of peer leaders of learning teams. And uh, we submitted to a journal and it was rejected uh, immediately because the executive editor couldn't find the research question. So it's our fault. We had buried it. But um, uh, we went on to another journal and uh, we got a decision um, that invited us to revise and resubmit. We revised, resubmitted and was rejected at that point. Uh, we went to a third journal and we got a decision within two, three months and was rejected then. Uh, fourth journal, fifth journal. So it was rejected five times before we finally found a, a sixth journal that uh, published our paper, and the editor thought it was pretty good. Well, it was pretty good by then because, of course, we had used the peer review reports to improve the manuscript along the way. So uh, I do like to say that all good papers are rejected at least once, at least my papers. Maybe yours are not rejected uh, at least once. No, mine get rejected too. <laughs> okay, so um, the peer review process uh, is not just for gatekeeping purposes of deciding what gets published, but it is also for improvement. And uh, when the peer review port reports offer suggestions, so you, you authors should take those seriously. You can disagree uh, for good reason, but uh, they're intended to make your manuscript better and more accessible. Um, and so we're grateful for the time that all of those reviewers put into our manuscript so that by the time we approach the sixth journal, it sailed right through and got a minor revisions. So we fixed those up and it was published pretty, pretty quickly. And that can happen with uh, grant proposals sometimes too. Um, Absolutely. Um, my, um, some of my grant proposals were funded, well, rarely on the first try, but uh, usually after revision. Mm -hmm next round so there's a delay of six months or a year depending on the cycle of reviewing for the um for that whatever program you're you're going for so now do you want to look around and see if there's any other hats oh um i don't know um, um being a professor uh it's a it's a wonderful life i as you know i'm uh approaching the end of a 30 well i've been an academic for 38 years and uh, I got into edu education research relatively late in my career, after 20 years, which uh, for some of the listeners may sound like an impossibly long time, but uh, I've been able to uh, enjoy doing research in a variety of areas. Areas I actually pivoted from, uh, I started doing theory of computing research, I pivoted as they say, to engineering ethics. And this is kind of the third area of, of research. And that's the advantage of having a long career and advantage of having tenure and being a full professor when I started doing this kind of work. And I, uh, I could just do whatever I wanted. And that's the benefits of academic freedom. So yes. uh, it's hard earned. You do have to go through the, this process uh, for those of you who are academics and in academic careers. But um, I think it's so worth it. I, uh, at least for me, uh, this is the way I've been able to contribute to um, uh, education of thousands and thousands of engineering students and uh, dozens of uh, people in engineering education myself. It's a great career, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Do you have any closing uh, comments? Yes, um, I have some concluding advice uh, for young researchers, particularly uh, graduate students who are embarking on their dissertation projects. Uh, conducting any research project, uh, such as a doctoral dissertation, is a long, arduous process. Uh, uh, 
sort of similar to climbing a mountain. Uh, and often you, it's best to have a mountain guide with you. That's usually your mentor, but uh, you might be uh, going with multiple people as well. Uh, research is difficult because you're trying to learn something that no one has ever learned before. And that's why I say research is the highest form of learning. Um, uh, now, I think the results are always worth the effort, but it's easy to become stuck or discouraged along the way. So uh, my main advice is to surround yourself with a variety of traveling companions. Uh, so some people should support and encourage you. Often those are your friends or family, uh, fellow graduate students. They're your peers. They will be progressing through your career, uh, through life with you. Um, I'm surprised uh, and pleased that I've still maintain contact with people who are graduate students with me. We've all gone in our separate directions, but uh, it's always fun to see what they're up to. And we encourage each other. The second group of people should challenge you to achieve more than you had ever thought you could. And usually I, as the advisor, serve in that purpose and challenge you. Um, some should inspire you by their examples, and some should help you have fun along the way. Uh, I tell my all of my undergraduates that learning should be fun, although my idea of fun is probably very different from theirs. Mm -hmm. uh, nevertheless, I feel there's a lot of joy in learning, whether in an undergraduate class or in a research project. So I wish all of you new researchers uh, much joy along your journeys. Well, that is a perfect way to stop. And it has been a joy to speak with you, Michael. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you, Ruth. Uh, I am very grateful that you invited me to be part of your podcast series. And now you can be immortalized, as you said, right? <laughs> yes. Forever on the internet. Yes, yes. Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music. A transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstreveler.wordpress.com.